How do you live the abundant life? First thing you need is you need a plan, a life plan. One of the great tragedies of the American educational system is that it fails to acknowledge this. We don't teach our children that from an early age they need to be developing a life plan. In fact, that even sounds foreign to our culture, to the way we think in the West. Some would even go so far as to say it's cruel, manipulative, trying to help a child determine where it's going to go when it's an adult and it's still just a child. Other cultures don't feel that way, and that's one reason America's being edged out in so many different ways. We are now behind educationally. We're lagging economically. Do you know that in Asia, China, Japan, for example, they routinely teach their small children that you need to discover why it is that you are here, what you want to do with your life, and begin to work toward it at an early age. We say, eh, they're kids, let kids be kids. Well, let them be kids, but teach them they have a role in life as well, that they have a destiny. Jewish people, the people of the book, the people of the Bible are particularly noted for this. A mother will introduce you to her little seven-year-old child and say, this is my son, the doctor, and this is my daughter, the nuclear physicist, and the daughter's eight. And they will say that just as seriously as they can be. Because they're programming their children to believe that they have important, significant destinies that they have been brought into the world to feel. Now, this is entirely compatible and in alignment with the teaching of God's Word and with reality, in fact. Everything that was ever made was made to fix a problem. Everything ever created is created to fix a problem. Seriously speaking, you're sitting on chairs. There was a time when there was no such thing as a chair. And somebody said, I think I can do better than just sitting on this stump or sitting on this rock. And besides, I can't carry the rock with me and the stump can't go with me either. I think I can fix something that will enable me to have a seat where I don't have to stand all the time or sit on the ground. First chair, I have no idea what it looked like. But somebody created a chair to meet a need. The car you drove in to get here was created to meet the need of transporting you from one place to another. There was a time when people never traveled over 25 miles from where they were born, as a rule. Also, the mobile phone that some of us can't hardly live without was not originally designed for Facebook either, or for selfies. It was originally designed for communication. Amen. Computers were designed to either store or communicate data and information, where you could access information more readily. In similar fashion, the great creator created you. And he's no different than any other creator. You were created to meet a need that exists in this world. And I want you to understand that when God created you, that he didn't, as an afterthought, you know, later realize, oh, they might need some help here. They might need a few resources. You know, the moment he created you in his mind, which was before you were born, you understand that? He also spoke into existence, into the heavenly dimension, every resource you will ever need to fulfill your assignment. Don't think that when you were created, that as an afterthought, God now is learning. Oh, hey, I never thought about that, Lazarus. You're going to need this to get that. Yeah, slipped my mind. Sorry about that. Uh -uh. Even Christ was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. 
God even knew we needed salvation before the first man ever was created that would ever sin. Oh, come on. I'm, I'm preaching to you now. Amen. Now, with this in mind, I want you to understand something. There is an enemy that opposes you ever becoming what God wanted you to be. He fights the release of every resource that will ever be needed for you to fulfill your destiny. And so today I want to talk to you about one of the most important of all of the kingdom keys that exist that can bring an extraordinary breakthrough to your life. A couple of things that I need to mention first. Number one is that acting ordinary doesn't move God to act extraordinarily. Ordinary action on your part, which let me redefine that, just living and being satisfied with mediocrity isn't going to convince God to use these vast resources at his disposal to help you achieve anything. If you're satisfied with mediocrity, why should he use his resources to help you? You can get to mediocrity all by yourself. You know what I'm saying? And so it's passion that drives you to reach beyond the limitations of your own ability. To become more than you, you really are capable of being in terms of your innate talents and gift sets, skill sets. It's passion that drives you to reach for more and more. Won't let you be satisfied. And so I've been telling you that to get God to act extraordinarily in your life, you've got to act extraordinary first. You've got to do something that gets his attention. And it is this that the scripture talks about in Hebrews when it says, seeing that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. What profession is that? What we're professing with our mouths, this confession we're making about God. And then it says, for we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. I remind you that that is a double negative, which in the translation should have been corrected, but it wasn't, and it wasn't for a reason. In our culture, in English, double negatives are incorrect grammar. Don't turn in a paper to school or university with a double negative in it. You're going to get a mark against you for that. Amen. However, you need to look down at the bottom. See, that's Hebrews 4 and verse 15. See that? Hebrews. The Jewish culture is different. In Hebrew culture, they emphasize things differently than they do in English-speaking cultures. Our culture, the way we communicate and emphasize something is raise our voice. Watch out! You know? Go, team, go! Rah! You know? That's the way we emphasize something. Hebrew culture, they emphasize something by using a double negative. It's their way of calling attention to it and underscoring it or italicizing it. And so what he's saying is we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, yet in all points was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let me now translate that into English and what it means. He's saying, wow, do we have a high priest or what? That's what the writer's literally saying. And not only that, but you can move that high priest to act in your circumstance. That's powerful. That's what he's literally saying and communicating here. So let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, you need a life plan, as I've said. 
The problem is, is that many people never plan to succeed, and therefore they're actually planning to fail. You don't plan to succeed, you're planning to fail. Second thing is about a life plan is it needs to be as clear and specific as you can make it. Now, I'm not one of those that is infallible. I'm the first to admit that. I am not omniscient. I don't know everything. Some people seem to be able to figure out the smallest, most minute detail in a life plan for 10 years down the road. Not me. I frequently have to employ mid-course corrections. I have to use mid-course corrections to make little adjustments as I'm moving toward my goal. I have a pretty good idea of what the general picture looks like, but along the way, I may have to make an adjustment or two. Amen. Don't be afraid to make those. The second thing about you needing a life plan is that if you don't have a life plan, you don't know what decisions to make with your life or which roads to follow. Most of us get in trouble in life and hurt ourselves because we make decisions that are not to our benefit. The reason they're not to our benefit is we act upon emotion rather than acting upon what's consistent with the plan that's supposed to be employed to get us to where we're supposed to be going. Amen. Not the devil that gives us all this trouble. It's oftentimes the guy that we wake up and look at in the mirror every morning that's causing us more trouble than the ever ever dreamed he could cause. Not, 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 just smile at me real big now and say, amen. You still here? Just put your head between your knees and take a deep breath. Okay, okay. Well, make sure you, you're still staying with me. So we need to make decisions that help us. Got another Boudreaux joke for y'all. Y'all ready? Now, I ran across some really good Boudreaux jokes recently, as you can tell. Boudreaux's house was right in the corner Outside of Eunice, Louisiana. Now, I can tell a Boudreaux joke. Y'all remember this because I'm a Cajun, like the fellow said, I are one. So this is a part of my culture. Amen. I just need to say that in case there are some politically correct folk here that think I'm picking on somebody. I'm not. I'm one of them. Amen. And my wife is too, but just want to get that straight. A hell's angel was flying down the highway on his motorcycle, and it was winter, and he was cold. The zipper on his leather jacket broke, and his chest was freezing, and he finally thought, I can't stand this anymore, and he stopped, pulled over, turned his leather jacket around, put his arms in backwards like that, and put the zipper part at his back, and thought, this is how I'm going to drive. He took off again, came to the corner, the curve in the highway, which was right in front of Boudreaux's house, lost control, and slid, had to lay the bike down, and Boudreaux heard the noise, looked out the window in time to see the hell's angel go flying in one direction and the bike in the other. And so he ran out to see what he could do and then ran back in to call state police. And he said, you better send somebody to come help this man quick. Amen. And so the state policeman said, well, sir, is he showing any signs of life? And Boudreaux said, well, he was till I turned his head around in the right direction. Just make sure when you turn your head, it's in the right direction. Or the result may not be what you want. Are you getting my point here? Amen. You need to realize that all along the way, the enemy is going to try to disrupt your plan. Your destiny, he's going to fight that. He's going to fight the release of the resources that God needs to bring into your life to fulfill your destiny. Amen. Your family's a part of that. Your job is a part of that. Your church is a part of that. 
all of this, the enemy is going to try to fight. So today I've come to begin. I'm not going to finish. I want to talk to you about one of the most extraordinary of the keys that you will ever find that will bring extraordinary breakthrough in your life. And that's extraordinary intercession. 2 Samuel 21 and 10. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiyah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beast of the field by night. This is one of the most shocking stories that you will ever read in the Bible. I've not given you enough of it to really understand what it's about, but I'll get back to it in just a few minutes. Before I talk to you about intercession and help you understand this story, let me point out to you that prayer is probably one of the most misunderstood of all of the mighty things that, that Christians can engage in in the church world today. Intercession is a dying practice, and it is something that, that we as believers are in desperate and sore need of teaching upon. Intercession is something that every single person needs to learn how to do. Amen. One reason that we don't understand intercession is people think that prayer is prayer is prayer. You prayed one prayer, you've prayed them all. You will find that there is a dearth of teaching that exists on this subject. There's not much out there. When I read the Bible, I find at least 12 different kinds of prayer that were prayed in the Bible. So that's why I wrote the book that you will see out in the lobby at the bookstore. A book on the 12 dimensions of prayer. Moving heaven to change earth. Then, and I haven't ever found this anywhere. This is something I feel like the Lord helped me to understand. There are two main categories of prayer. One is devotional prayer. The other is strategic prayer. I'll show you the difference here in just a minute. The, there are seven kinds of devotional prayers. There are five strategic prayers. The first type of devotional prayer are prayers of thanksgiving. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. You say, what difference does it make? I'll tell you what difference it makes. Many years ago when I was just a young guy, teenager, I needed to cut a board, but I couldn't find a saw. I learned that you can actually cut a board with a hammer, believe it or not. You can. Especially if it's got the claw on the top. It's a claw hammer. Or you can do it with just the, the other part of the hammer as well. Guaranteed, it won't be pretty. It's not going to be neat. But you can actually hit that board with that hammer until you break the fiber, the wood fiber, the cellulose fiber in that board. If you have a board that needs to fit into a place and it's too long and you don't have a saw, you can do what I'm talking about and you can actually cut the board. You can beat on it until you so destroy the fiber that the board itself will break at where you, the point where you've been hammering it. Now, like I said, it won't be a straight line, won't be neat, and it's going to be a mess to look at and won't win you any awards. But I want to point something else out. There's an invention called the saw that is so much neater and will get the job done a lot more quickly and to the specifications that are needed for you to finish your task. You use the right tool for the right task, it always makes the job easier and more successful. In similar fashion, failing to understand the different kinds of prayer 
has resulted in an attitude on, on the part of the church where many people don't enjoy praying because they're using a hammer to try to cut the board. Amen. Prayers of thanksgiving are the first form. Enter, you don't even get started praying until you thank him for what he's already done. And then number two are laudatory prayers. You see, if you don't pray in the right way, the percentages of answered prayers go way, way down. And who wants to pray a prayer that's never answered? Laudatory prayers literally are prayers of praise. And so you enter his gates with thanksgiving, then come into his courts with praise. So you start out telling him how wonderful he is. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. You're so good. Thank you for what you blessed me with, my family, my job. Thank you for the church I attend. Thank you for the health you've given me. And then you're going to say, you're a good God, and you're a mighty God, and you're a God that's never faced a problem that was anywhere near as big as you. And, and then you come to prayers of contrition because you see there is a progression that is unfolding here. You enter his gates with thanksgiving. You come into his courts with praise. And the closer you get to him, the instinctive and natural response of your humanity juxtapositioned against his righteousness is to realize how imperfect we are as human beings. And so then the third form of prayer is prayers of contrition. This is where you say, forgive me, Lord, because I've got, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm a faulty human being. I, you know, I'm made of earth, and I'm not perfect. Thank you for the grace of God that you hear what I'm saying. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I wouldn't even be here right now. Amen. Amen. And then you move to prayers of petition. And the problem is most folk jump right over those first three, prayers of thanksgiving, laudatory prayers, and prayers of contrition, and go right into hollering, give me my daily bread, and wonder why they don't get any. Amen. Because it's kind of arrogant to come ask when you hadn't even thanked him for what he's already done. Amen. You hear where I'm coming from? And bring all your stuff in and act like you're not even ashamed of it and yeah, I don't need your help with my life. I just want my daily bread. That's all I want. Don't you worry about my life. That's my personal stuff. Just give me my bread. Well, what, how many prayers like that would you answer if you were God? You see where I'm coming from. Amen. So then you come to prayers of petition. And after prayers of petition, you suddenly discover that all this daily bread God's been giving you for years Guess what? You don't even really own it anyway. He's been the one giving it to you. And that brings us to dedicatory prayers. Because in your spiritual development, you begin to realize, hey, all that stuff I, I thought was mine, that job I thought I got was because I was so smart. God, you're the one that gave me that too. And you gave me the house I live in and the car I drive. And Amen. Dedicatory prayers are when you realize who owns your stuff and you start giving it back to God. There's a prayer beyond that, which are prayers of commitment. And that's different than a dedicatory prayer. A prayer of commitment is not giving God your stuff. It's realizing that not only does your stuff already belong to God, even you belong to God. Amen. Dedicatory prayers are about your things, your daily bread. 
your car, everything else. You just say, God, it's yours anyway. Amen. I'm not going to carry it out of this world. You gave it to me. Naked was I when I came into the world. And I'm going to leave here the same way. I'll be naked when I go. Everything I have, you gave it to me. But then prayers of commitment are when you begin to demonstrate real spiritual maturity. And that's when you say, hey, not only do you own my stuff, but I'm not even my own. I'm bought with a price. I'm bought with the blood of Christ. And, and you realize that even your life belongs to God. And once you have prayed prayers of commitment, you're now ready to pray prayers of intimacy, which is true worship. Remember this progression. Because some people go to church Sunday after Sunday and try to enter into worship. And they hadn't even bothered to thank God for what he's done. Haven't bothered to praise him. Haven't bothered, bothered with prayers of contrition. That, none of that. Amen. And they want to move right in from out there in that world into prayers of intimacy and worship. And they wonder why they don't enjoy church. Am I helping anybody? I'm preaching right now. Amen. It's once you have learned the progression and the prayers of intimacy, you realize these are what constitute prayers of devotion. Okay, devotional prayers are between you and God. They're personal, but they don't affect the world around you. Now, what makes devotional prayers and strategic prayers differ is this. Strategic prayers affect what's going on around you. Once you've got your relationship with God, you leverage that to change what's going on in the world outside of your life. Amen. The first form of strategic prayer is intercession. We'll talk about that in a moment. Then there are prayers of agreement. Once you've interceded about something, then the next level of prayer is whenever you move into prayers of agreement and you get somebody to agree with you where two or three are agreed on anything, Jesus said, that it will happen, it will be done. So you move now beyond just you praying it. You get somebody else to join with you in covenantal agreement. But there's a level of prayer beyond that. Once you've interceded for it, once you've come into agreement with other believers, there's then declarative prayers. What are declarative prayers? Declarative prayers are when you have enough spiritual insight to realize there's a reality greater than reality. What am I talking about? I'm talking about that if God said it, don't matter what it looks like right now. If God said it, his word is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. Can somebody in the building say amen right now? And so this is why the scripture said, let the weak say I am strong. Let the blind say I can see. This is why Peter said, concerning those that might be ravaged with a fever, by his stripes you were healed. You say, but I'm sick. No, Peter said, pray declarative prayers. By his stripes you were healed. There's a reality greater than what you're looking at right now. You speak the word of God over your situation, it will change your situation to reflect the word of God. Amen. Can somebody in the building say amen? amen? And then there's warfare prayers. That's the fourth form of strategic prayer. What's warfare prayer? 
warfare prayers after you have interceded, gone into agreement with other believers, spoken God's word over the circumstance, amen, instead of accepting as reality what the devil's trying to convince you is going to happen, you then turn the authority of your prayer to attack the very enemy that's been troubling you in the, the first place. Satan, I'm not only declaring God's word and God's picture of reality as being greater than what you have declared is reality. I'm also looking you right in the eye and telling you your kingdom is coming down. Amen. The blood of Jesus is against you. You've ruled in darkness, but I've learned something. And I want you to know that when I learned something, the rules changed. You could deceive me up until I figured something out. But once I learned something, you can't... Oh, I'm not in darkness anymore. Amen. I've done seen through your Ponzi scheme, your scam. You've been boozled me long enough. It's not going to work anymore. You're nothing but a con artist and you got busted. That's what happened. I figured you out. Your kingdom's coming down. And then the fifth kind of strategic prayer is when you pray governmental prayers. What are governmental prayers? Governmental prayers are thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Governmental prayers are not praying for a particular political party or your favorite candidate. Governmental prayers are not about whether you're Republican or Democrat or Independent. Governmental prayers are praying in the kingdom of God to replace the kingdom of darkness that you have been tearing down in warfare prayers. Am I helping anybody understand here? Now back to prayers of intercession. To intercede literally means to stand between something for the purpose of, watch it, protection, benefit, preservation, or reconciliation. Stand between something. Now, that can be between God and man. You're standing between God and man for the purpose of protection, benefit, preservation, or reconciliation. Maybe someone has gone to a place where judgment's about to come. Judgment is always God's last option. Always. The heart of God is so loving and kind that even when judgment is coming, God's looking for somebody to be an intercessor. Amen. That's right. Amen. And then, in addition to that, you stand between men and other men. Sometimes you've got to stand between men for the purpose of these things. And the third thing intercession means is to stand between someone and the enemy when the enemy's trying to do harm. It is in this particular sense that I want to address intercession for just the next few minutes. If you will look at the story that I read to you about a moment ago, the story is about a woman named Rispa. To tell you who she was, she was one of the, the wives of Saul. Now, she had two sons by Saul, and her sons had been executed. The whys and the wherefores are, are actually laid out in the Bible for us to, to read and to understand. Israel had been 400 years out of the promised land, and they had been in captivity in Egypt, but now it was time for them to go home. And so they had gone through the 40 years of the wilderness, and in the 40 years of the wilderness, you know the story. They had seen the Red Sea's part. They had been supernaturally sustained in the, in the desert. Now the Jordan's River had parted. They've entered into the promised land. Buddy, talk about news getting out in a hurry. Talk about a wave being pushed in front of them. When the news got out that Israel is back, 
Trust me, they told every story. They told about the Red Sea parting. They told about all the supernatural things God had done. And everybody that was in the land of Canaan that had moved in after Israel had been taken into captivity during the famine that was during the days of Joseph. You remember that? They had gone down there and it ended up being a bad thing. They became slaves to a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. Well, those who moved in after Israel had vacated their land, they heard the story. And they were pagans, they were idol worshipers, and they were, they were not good people. And they heard what God had done, and they were terrified. Now, across the next hill, as Israel has just entered Canaan land, it's been so long since they've been there, they don't know that the city is just over the hill. There's a city called, that's the city of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were a tribe of pagan idol worshipers, and they were terrified. So they called a council meeting, and they said, how are we going to deal with this fact that the Israelites have just come in, and we're about to lose the homes that we moved in while they had been away? And you know what they did? They decided to use trickery and guile. And so they got some of the, 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 the sickliest men in the village, the city, and they brought them in. I mean, scarecrow-looking figures. They got some of the, the, the most broken-down horses. I'm talking about swayback nags here, ready for the glue factory. That, that paint a picture for you. Okay. And they got some old moldy bread, and then they went down to the Salvation Army and found the worst clothes that, that, that somebody had thrown away. They dressed these scarecrow-looking guys in these clothes, gave them the moldy bread, put them on the back of these swayback nags, and said, cross the hill and go tell Israel, you are from far away. So they did. They showed up at the camp of Israel, and Israel's, the Israelites said, where are you from? And they said, we're from far. You don't even know where it's at. It's so far away. Man, it, it's, 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 it's thousands of miles away. And, and they said, we've come here because we've heard what God has done for you, and we want to enter into a peace agreement with you. And so the Israelites didn't pray about it. Children of God didn't pray. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll enter into a peace agreement. And they entered into a covenant in the name of the Lord God Jehovah. And they made peace with these people. And the people said, see ya. They staggered back to their sway back horses, got on. And the horses limped off, went across the hill. And, and Israel thought, we'll never see those folk again. No, no more need to worry about them. Instead, the next day when they broke camp and crossed the top of the hill, guess who they met the very next day? Hey, how are y'all? <laughs> and they said, we tricked you. They said, uh, yeah, we figured that out. And, but we can't do anything to you because we've already entered into a covenant in the name of the Lord God Jehovah. Years later, after Joshua's dead and gone, the judges have come and gone. Now Israel has its first king. His name is Saul. Saul is basically a very insecure individual. Saul's never fully committed his heart to God because he's too worried about what people are going to think about him. Sometimes it's better to be respected than it is to be liked. Amen. Saul has made a series of mistakes trying to please people. And in so doing, he's really displeased God. Not only has he displeased God, he's caused the favor of God to leave the nation. And now he's playing this old game that people always play. Politics is the same anywhere you go, anywhere in the world. The way you get by with your stuff is you get people looking over there while you do what you're doing over here. And so Paul, Saul played this game of diversion. And he said, I tell you who it was. It was those dirty scalawags of Gibeonites living right here in our shores. 
idolaters. I mean, these people are pagan idol worshipers. They brought the disfavor of God upon us. We need to go and deal with that. And the people said, yeah, let's go deal with it. And they went and they dealt with it. And they killed a bunch of the Gibeonites, but some of them escaped. And so ultimately, as a result of violating the covenant made in the name of Jehovah God, Saul ended up losing his life. That and some other egregious acts of wrongdoing where he dishonored the Lord. Now David is king. And there has been three years of uninterrupted drought and famine. The crops won't grow and people are dying and livestock is dying. And David goes to seek God and ask God, why? Why, God? I'm trying to lead these people the way you want me to lead them. What happened? Why are we going through this? And God said, because the, of the bloody house of Saul, he broke the covenant made in the name of Jehovah God and dishonored me. You're going to have to fix that, David. You know what David did? He sends ambassadors to the Gibeonites that have remained, and he asked them, how can we correct this? And they said, we need seven sons of Saul that remain alive to pay the price, and we want to ex execute them to atone our need for vengeance. David doesn't bother to pray first. Oh, God, this is heavy. And in the age-old saga that has existed throughout the centuries, sons always end up paying for the wrongs of their fathers. And David, not bothering to pray, gives in to the bloodthirsty demands of these people. And they take seven sons of Saul, five by one of his wives who died. And these sons were raised instead by Micah, his daughter. And two of the sons, the only sons, in fact, she had of Rizpah, who is the, one of the other wives of Saul. And they take these seven sons, and in a form of execution that was particularly barbaric, and cruel, they impaled them upon wooden stakes they had driven into the ground, impaled their bodies. This was an especially wicked form of punishment, and that the person that was impaled often lived for several days, two or three days afterward, impaled on this stake, with a stake driven up through their bowels into their intestines and inner organs. And they left them that way until they all one by one died. And then everybody went home except for one person. The one person who didn't go home was the mother of those two boys on the inn. Her name was Rispa. She took her cloak and laid it on the ground. And by day, she stood there waving the cloak, chasing away the jackals and the wolves that came and also the vultures and the fowls of the air and at night she couldn't sleep she chased away everything that tried to come and desecrate the bodies of her children you talk about a picture of intercession it's one of the most powerful you will ever find anywhere in the word of God this woman stood there to keep the beast and the fowls from destroying the bodies of what God had given her and sometimes you got to stand in front of the devil and you got to say, you can't have what God has given to me. You can't have my destiny. You can't have my future. You can't have my job. You can't have my family. You can't have my business. You can't have my ministry. You can't have my anointing. Amen. Can somebody in the building say amen and I'm done? 
I'm going to have to finish this next week. You don't want to miss next week, I promise you. I know it's Father's Day. I've got a word for you dads. I'll finish this next week because if there's anybody that has power to move God, it's daddy. Amen. Mama, you don't want to miss this either because you can be the rispa. And you know what happened? Somebody brought the king word and said, you know that woman is still out there? You know how many months had passed? Five months had gone by. She hadn't gone home to shower. She didn't go get her nails done. She didn't go to the beauty salon and get her hair fixed. She didn't go get her makeup done. She didn't go change her clothes. I don't even know how she survived. Somebody must have brought her a meal unless there was a McDonald's down the road. But all I know is for five months she stood there and she said, you're not going to take what God gave me. I'm not letting you destroy what belongs to me. She stood there in intercession and hear me today. The crying need of families in the world that we live in right now. Where are the intercessors? Where are the intercessors? Where are the intercessors?